Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. This is Joey Taylor, the producer of the podcast, and for this week's episode, we'll hear the Abundant Community Conversation from September 14th. Abundant Community Conversations take place on Zoom, and they always contain poetry, small groups, and an exploration of a particular theme. In this conversation, Troy Bronsink hosts a conversation between Peter Block and David Brooks. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times and a contributor to The Atlantic. His forthcoming book, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen, will be published in October. As the conversation opens, Reverend Ben McBride reads an excerpt from his own book, Troubling the Water, The Urgent Work of Radical Belonging. After Ben concludes, Troy then begins the conversation. People sometimes think of belonging as the feeling of comfort when we are accepted, the sense of fitting in. But when belonging means simply acclimating to the status quo of the cultural majority, it stops being true belonging. Belonging can't just be the comfortable and happy feeling we might get as we nestle down with people who are just like us. If we think that, we've missed the point. Radical belonging means co-creating with the perceived other to widen the circle of human concern. And what makes it truly radical is that it means doing this even when that very person or group seems to be working to constrict our circle of human concern. Radical belonging pushes us to imagine a world where the circle of human concern is big enough to include everyone. Like the well-meaning person you are, you might be asking, okay, so what do I do to create a world where all can belong? I believe that's the wrong question. Each of us should be asking ourselves, who do I need to become? Thank you, Ben. And welcome everybody to today's Abundant Community Conversation with David Brooks and Peter Block. My name is Troy Bronsink, and I'm stepping in today for Reverend Sushama Austin Connor. She has come down with COVID and asked us uh, to share that with y'all. And uh, so I'll do my best to hold this conversation with these two folks and really with all of y'all so that we can start to practice some of what Ben just described. And I'm going to invite you first just to take a breath and catch up to this moment. So if you're here right now, I can see the three of us, but just kind of notice the room around you. Notice why it was important for you to show up. Why did this feel like a significant place to put your time and attention this hour? And we're really excited that you join us. So uh, David Brooks, Peter Block, thank you for being a part of this time. And we were going to just jump right in. So David, your book, How to Know a Person, in the first part of it, you describe this notion of personhood and seeing the person, the importance of seeing an individual. And both of your work really spend some time on the power of the exchange when you're present with someone. And I thought you might begin a little bit with what seeing Peter's work has done for you, and then what being seen feels like, a little bit of what it is to observe, but then what it is to be witnessed. Because we're not just talking about the two of y'all, we're talking about this room and the world in which we're in, how that happens for all of us. So a little bit about seeing, if you will. Yeah, Yeah, well, my main job is I'm a political columnist, and I was noticing that a lot of the problems I was writing about had an underlying problem. And it was about the terrors in our society. We all know about the rise of depression, the rise of suicide, 
54% of Americans say no one knows them well. The number of people without close personal friends has quadrupled this century. And so there's a relational crisis. And I just wanted to understand what is this crisis and how can we make it a world in which people actually do feel seen? And so I was stumbling around looking for how to understand this problem. And I came across Peter's work and that really was the solution. And so one of the things I've tried to do with my coming book, which is How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen, I tried to say, okay, we all know the importance of relationship and community, but what specifically does that mean? What specific social skills do you need in order to see another human being? And I walk people through the process from the first gaze to the intimate knowing of a spouse or a friend or somebody uh, you really know very well. I just walk people through the process. And I'll just start with the first step, which I think is important yeah. to me. And that first step in seeing another is the gaze. When you meet somebody for the very first time, they're unconsciously asking themselves a question. And these questions are, am I a person to you? Am I a priority to you? And the answers to those questions will be made in your eyes before they're made in your mouth. And I'll just close with this little story, is I was down in Waco, Texas, interviewing an educator named LaRue Dorsey, this 93-year-old lady, and she presented herself to me as a stern disciplinarian. She was a teacher, and she said, I love my children enough to discipline them. And I was a little intimidated by her. And we have a mutual friend in Waco, a guy named Jimmy Durrell, who's a pastor who has a church called Church Under the Bridge, where he serves the homeless. He walks into the diner, sees us there, walks up to Mrs. Dorsey and shakes her way harder than you should shake a 93-year-old. And he says, <laughs> Mrs. Dorsey, Mrs. Dorsey, you're the best. You're the best. I love you. I love you. And that turned Mrs. Dorsey from this stern disciplinarian into a bright, eye-shining nine-year-old girl all of a sudden. And that was the power of Jimmy's gaze. When you cast attention on somebody, you are creating something in that person. And what's important about Jimmy's gaze and what it has to teach us is that Jimmy's a pastor, as I said. So when he's looking at a person, any person, he's looking into someone made in the image of God. He's looking a little into the face of God. He's looking at somebody with a soul of infinite value and dignity. He's looking at somebody so important that Jesus was willing to die for that person. Now, you can be a Christian or a Jew or an atheist or agnostic Muslim. I don't really care. But looking at somebody with that level of respect and reverence is an absolute precondition for seeing others well. So that would be my first step toward seeing another person. That's beautiful. Peter, how have you met the gaze of others and how has that affected you? Well, here we are together. What you're doing is making it concrete by the way you are, David, the way you show up. You're a blessed anomaly. When you <laughs> said your basic job is a political columnist, I think that's just what you do. I don't think that's your basic job. I see you being a weaving and a healing force and having a large platform to do that in. And many people use that platform for other things like their ideology, their belief system. And I just so appreciate that fact that you're an advocate for our humanity and the books you write and even the way you fulfill your political columny is always healing in its way. I so appreciate that. And the fact is you have found a following and a listening for the gaze you bring upon this nation. And, and I just so appreciate that. And I wanted to say that to you. It's nice to say it to you, kind of in person. I guess this is in person. What, what does that all mean to you, David? What, what are you up to that's 
having you integrate these two worlds, the human, the healing, the gaze, seeing each other on the one hand, and then to be in the middle of the wound on the other hand. How do you bring that together? And what, what matters to you about what you're up to? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you. I feel seen because my job is political commentary a lot of the time, but that's not really what matters to me. What matters no. to me is the kind of thing we do together, which is talking about community, talking about relationships. I just think as a society, we're over-politicized and under-moralized. Uh, mm. And we too, spend too much time on politics and not enough say, on the things that really matter. Say that again slowly so I can absorb it. <laughs> that we're over, as a society, we're over-politicized and under-moralized. That's beautiful. And so we don't talk enough about how to ask for an offer of forgiveness, how mm. to build a friendship. If you're going to break up with somebody, how do you break up with them without destroying their heart? These are little moral acts. And it seems to me we don't teach our kids these acts. And as a result, a lot of them are, are leading less happy lives uh, than we want. And my project, you know, I'm not an extraordinary person, but I am a grower <laughs> and, and I, I do grow. And, and so I, I was really struck a couple of things by what Ben read to us. The first was, of course, I was reminded of Ralph Elveson's Invisible Man, the first passage of which really is the quintessential description of what it feels like to be invisible, in his case, because of his race, where he has a sentence in there that people don't see me. They see reflections of themselves. They see my environment. They see their own projections. They don't see me. And that really is what society has done. And then the other thing, Ben, you said was, who do I need to become? And, and that's really the journey I guess I'm on. I hope we're all on that. It, it, it's like, what kind of person do I want to be? And I, I try to be a grower. And I hope that by, frankly, being, I started out pretty aloof and emotionally unexpressive. And hopefully by being more vulnerable, I'm a little closer to being a full human being. And I'm going to name drop. This is impermissible, but I'm going to do it because it's a proud moment for me. So I, I've been lucky enough twice in my life to be interviewed by Oprah. And they were four years apart. And after the second interview, Oprah, after the taping, she said to me, you know, I've never seen anybody change so much. You were so blocked before. Wow. And that was like a proud moment for me because like, okay, I'm trying to be open. And, and she should know she's Oprah. So, like she's the expert. And so that's what we're trying to do. How, who do I need to be? Ben's question is the right one. That was your, your bar mitzvah, your second bar mitzvah, wasn't it? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, I, I thought, just to pick up on Ben, uh, I love what you said, and I love the title, Troubling the Water, and where like-mindedness is the opposite of our humanity. It's in the way of our humanity, and it's a good marketing strategy, because whenever I buy something, people say, well, other, other people like you have bought this, and they're right. But as far as being together, it's about welcoming the stranger. And I feel that David, in the storyline that runs throughout your writing and your work on public work, is a welcoming of the stranger. There's a forgiveness in it, which is the very different than the traditional journalistic storyline. There's very few headlines in your employer's paper. And I have affection. I consulted with the New York Times for a few years trying to keep the family together, okay? But the, that headline does not talk about forgiveness. It does not talk about humanity. Even the most positive headline hints that there's something wrong with us and keep reading to find out. And I just think you are a welcoming. 
what mm-hmm. Ben is talking about. We, we need the stranger. We need the other to find out who I am. Otherwise, I'll never be surprised. This is Ben jumping in. One of the things that 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 really strikes me too, just to say a quick word, you know, what you're saying, David, around this notion of seeing, I do think it's super important because we can't get to that shared humanity unless we find a way to lean into that practice of seeing. And as you were saying it, it took me back to some of the learning that I've been doing from South African culture and one of the indigenous languages, Zulu, their greeting is actually Sawabona, which means I see you. But then the response is Sikona, because you see me. I am now here, which really unpacks what you're lifting up, that people's story and lived experience doesn't actually Mm -hmm. enter the space until we do this unknown agreement with one another, that I'm going to see you and I'm going to bring your experiences, even though they're very different from my own, into the space. And we get to have that coexistence when we do that common work together. It's a profound thing that is in that language because seeing someone is a, is a creative act. Yeah, I see you. I call you into being. I see potential in you. You see potential in yourself. I see you. You light up. And so it's it's really something that brings forth life. And you know, social range is is the fun part. I mean, I used to be a guy who put these headphones in my ears on the train or on a plane or wherever I was. Now I'm more likely to ha- have a conversation, and it's way more fun. It's just way Mm -hmm. more fun. And the people I meet are not always my cup of tea, frankly. But I've learned to ask them questions. And and I'll go to a party and I'll leave the party and I'll think, how many people there asked me a question? And I've learned that like only about 30% of people are question askers. They're perfectly nice people. The rest, they're just not curious about you. (laughs) And one of the things I've learned from Peter, which I, I wanted to name, was how great Peter is at coming up with questions. And I put some of them in my book, some of my favorites there a lot. Uh, Thank but you. What is the no or refusal you keep postponing? What have you said yes to that you no longer really believe in? What forgiveness are you withholding? What gift do you, do you currently hold in exile? These are all great questions. And the quality of our conversations is going to depend on the quality of our questions. And questioning somebody is a moral act. And I'll, Niobe Way is a friend of mine who teaches eighth grade boys in New York, as well as being an NYU professor. And she was teaching them how to ask questions. And so she says to the eighth grade boys, okay, you ask me anything and I'll answer truthfully. And so the first question was, are you married? And she said, no. Second question, are you divorced? Yes. Third question, do you still love him? (laughs) She's like, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, yes. (laughs) And the fourth question, does he know? Fifth question, do do your kids know? And so kids are phenomenal at asking questions. They go right for it. As adults, we get a little shy and we pull back. But so that skill of asking questions is yet another skill that we don't teach enough to each other. The questions are powerful. Some questions are more powerful than others. And all the questions about what got you here are not very powerful because we think that's who we are. And it explains nothing. Okay, Mm -hmm. It's just a good story, which, which you proved to Oprah. Because in four years, you came back and Oprah probably brought you back because she heard something that changed in you. And so the questions like the ones you read are ones that no matter how you answer, you're on the line. Yeah. No matter how you answer, you're vulnerable. And so the questions that evoke true vulnerability in the moment is what remind me that I'm not alone. And I think that's what you represent, David. Can I, can I ask you, Peter, 
Yeah. When you yeah. are in a community asking these questions, does anybody ever say none of your damn business or do they want well, to share? First, I break them into small groups. The group of three is a sacred circle. And, and I ask them the question, but I never monitor and I never find out that they answer it. And if people say, I didn't come for that, and I get that a lot, especially middle-aged white men, okay? <laughs> I didn't come for that. And I said, I know you didn't come for that, and I want you to stay. And the fact that they are become the other, they become the stranger. Join a small group. I didn't come for that, yes. And don't say anything. Just say, I pass. And so even people who don't want to answer the question are always welcome. The other caution is don't be helpful. So you're advocating a world where I give up my help in exchange for my curiosity and give people 12 minutes in a small group who chose to show up for anything, okay, and ask them the question, what's to know you've been postponing and they fall in love with each other? How long does it take to fall in love? About 12 minutes, 14 if they're slow. <laughs> and and, and what, what they discover is that they thought they were crazy and they're not. They thought they were alone and they're not. And that's what your work and then is an affirmation is there's nothing wrong with you. And that's what the gaze, I love the gaze, there's a painting about the gaze. And that artist in painting that had the feminine look upon us in a way that they'd never had before. And I think the gaze is the point. And then you can bring these questions anywhere. Asking of the question is powerful. It doesn't matter how you answer. So Peter, that one point you said, but I want you to be here if you're willing to be here. That invitation, that vulnerable you're, you're piece. You're welcome and, here. You are welcome and, here. And you're only talking to people that showed up. Yeah. Yep. If the fact they showed up is everything. Now, if they want to be a jerk yeah. and they're showing up, but they're in the room. And yeah. So to ahead. say I want that publicly in front of somebody and to ask them puts yourself into a vulnerable position. Instead of to say, you should stay or I'm going to leverage what I've got here. It's going into that vulnerable space. What vulnerable questions have opened y'all up? What kind of question has someone asked that's moved you to a place of leaning in further to know them or to feel know yourself. more yourself in their presence? Yeah, I guess for me, I would say it's the questions that force you to step back from the day-to-dayness of your life and mm-hmm. see your life from 30,000 feet. And so mm-hmm. those are things like, what crossroads are you at? Because most of us are at a crossroads, but we're not thinking about it. And then somebody asks, I have a friend who was at a job interview and he was the one being interviewed, but he turned around to the interviewer and he said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And she started crying because she wouldn't be doing HR at that company if she wasn't afraid. And, and, you know, I, I used to teach at Yale and I would ask my kids, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And some of them would say, I wouldn't be at Yale. It's not the right school for me, but I need the prestige. And so those questions like that, my wife makes fun of me for this, but I once in the middle of a dinner party we were hosting asked, how do your ancestors show up in your life? And so we've all been been influenced by our ancestors and it was a great conversation. I kid you not, this morning at coffee, there was a little bit of a joke with some friends about me, me stepping in to do this. And at some point, the question of ancestors came up. And I get to win a bet if I get to ask this. And you just walked right into it, Dave. So I'm oh, going to wow. trust the moment right here. What, what does ancestors mean to you? What does well, ancestors uh, mean to you? Who are the people that show up in the presence as you're coming alive in the world that help you feel the swell of, this is my work to be in this moment? Yeah, well, the Better. most immediate is my grandfather. This is my most immediate ancestor who really helped raise me. He was an immigrant. He gave me that immigrant mentality. 
And I'll tell an embarrassing story about myself. At the end of his life, our family was not the kind who said, we love you. We don't, we don't say that. At the end of his life, as he was dying, he told me he loved me for the first time. Mm. And I was too emotionally constipated to tell, tell him I loved him back. Mm-hmm. And I, that's a moment that lives in shame in my life. Well, you can say I, it to him right now, David. I, yeah, I guess I can. Well, I'll say it to Bernard Levy. I, I love you. And then to go a little more distant, I grew up in a Jewish home. And so there are some obvious things that come with from being Jewish. You, you were the people of the book, so we're pretty studious. Uh, for us, argument is a form of prayer. <laughs> and so we yeah. tend to argue <laughs> with each other. Uh, and, and then the final thing is, Thousands of years ago, Jews were these obscure people in a distant part of the world, and they subscribed to a faith that said the history of the world and the universe pins around you. <laughs> and that covenant was audacious. It's an audacious claim, but it puts you under moral pressure to, that there's some responsibility to keep improving, to show up for the world. And so mm-hmm. I think some of my restlessness comes out of that two, 3,000 years ago, that history that's been that is continued. And I'm a big believer. If you go around the world, you go around the country, things that happened hundreds of years ago, shape how people vote, how they dress, how they think, how they talk. We are products of history. And so that ancestor question is a precious one to me. Yeah. You know, uh, Peter, how would you answer that? Yeah. Well, in Africa, they have these, these wooden sculptures with nails in them. And I saw one, I was going to buy it, but it scared me too much. And I said, what are those nails for? They said, well, that's our job is to absorb the wounds of our ancestors mm. so they can rest in peace. Mm. And I have felt that my job in part was to heal the wounds of my father who died too young and too distressed. And I take that on. And one of my questions of God is, I, you know, one of the questions I love is, what's the question if you had an answer to would set you free? And my question is, of God, I, I feel I was given an invoice, and this is part of being Jewish. I was given an invoice and said, okay, now that I've given you birth, you owe something. And mm-hmm. I, I want to ask God, have I paid my bill yet? You know, I've been working <laughs> oh, my on goodness. it. <laughs> and my head says, well, maybe you have, because I'm, you know, but then the body doesn't think so. And so it I keeps would, going up for moments like this. Powerfully put, the body doesn't doesn't think so. Like the body is remembering the wounds, both of our own childhood, and then as that's carried through in the environment around us, and of course through our families and ancestors. I'm curious. We're going to go to a small group to ask a question, and and I'm curious if y'all would help me shape the question. Well, we had talked earlier about a question. What question do you need answered to to set you free? Okay. I thought that's a pretty good question. <laughs> it, it asks you to think about. In what ways are we bound, whether it's by fear or by convention or whatever. At this point, participants were placed in breakout rooms. The question they were given was, what's the question that if you had an answer to would set you free? And so I'd like to invite you to take a breath and consider the question for yourself. What's the question that if you had an answer to, would set you free. Another breath in and out. As you consider this question for yourself, here's another excerpt from Reverend Ben McBride. For centuries, we've been told stories that some people in this world are less human than others. 
These st inherited stories are false and damaging, but they perpetuate the myths that we should exclude some people, take away their voices and opportunities, and deny them belonging so that we can stay safe. We've been conditioned to accept these stories, and we've chosen to adopt them as principles from our beliefs. But we have another choice. We can choose to believe we are radically interconnected, that we are deeply connected across difference because we have the power within us to do so. So let's start by redirecting our inclination towards self-interest to the notion of collective interest of all. And we can do the work that's necessary to achieve this goal. The question one final time. What's the question that if you had an answer to would set you free? Now, as we return, Troy continues the conversation. David, in your, uh, in your book, you talk about the politics of recognition, which I think in a sense is the closing down of my connection to the other by you know, verifying my own point, those pieces. And, and so I think the question I want to ask is how has connection reversed that in you? How have you noticed in a connection where it's reversed the sense of closing down? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I was emotionally sort of shut in. And I've been on this journey to open and Peter and this community have certainly helped me on that journey. And I got to a point, not only the Oprah story, I'm reminded I had, I was at some conference and the moderator told us to look into the eyes of the stranger next to us and sing a song into their eyes. And if you had asked me to do that five years ago, my head would have exploded. I just <laughs> like hate that kind of instant intimacy, but I did it and I survived it. Why uh, do you think we hate it? Because fear of emotion, fear of intimacy, fear that somebody won't like you, maybe emotion has hurt you. And so you don't want to show it. Maybe you're emotionally avoidant. And in my business, I think politics, I'm sitting here in Washington, D.C., the most emotionally avoidant space on the face of the earth. <laughs> and so, you know, empathy is three things. It's first mirroring the emotions of the person in front of you. And to do that, you really have to be comfortable in your body because emotions are held in the body. And then it's mentalizing. It's using my own experience to try to understand your experience. If it's your first day in your job, I think back, oh, that was my first day on the job. And then third, it's a performance. It's care. Like con men are really good at understanding other people, but we don't call them empathetic because they don't care. <laughs> and if I'm writing a thank you note for a gift you've given me, my first instinct is to be me focused and say, thank you for the gift. Here's how I'm going to use it. But to me, a more empathetic thing to do is to say, thank you for your intentions in selecting this gift for me. And so thank you for your mindset in trying to look into me to see what would be a good gift for me. And it sort of gets you thinking about the other rather than about yourself. And I've had to learn that. It's possible to create a structure and a context. People are waiting to have the conversations we're talking about, David, even closed, cautious people, because that's not who they are. You know, you're in rooms, any questions, no. And as soon as the break is called, everybody's got something to say. And I think there's a politics of the room, or you doing that even as a, as a political commentator, you can create structures that allow people to do what they came to do, even though they never would have said that. So it's not so much just how did it happen to me, but how do we structure it for others? And that's what you do with your writing, David. And I feel that in the way you choose to write your columns, you're reconstructing journalism, okay? That's a big... 
It, well, welcome to being a Jew. You're reconstructing <laughs> journalism, okay? Anything, anything smaller, and I know I would not have paid my invoice. Okay? <laughs> and, and you do it by finding threads that we can all hold on to. In the most difficult and polarized of situations, how do you stay undistracted by the polarized world that you've chosen to put yourself mm -hmm. into? So I so appreciate that. The fact that you're remembering what journalism can and should and might become. Yeah. Well, earlier you mentioned, I think one of the problems with maybe my newspaper, but all of journalism, is that we have a broken theory of social change, which is we think wow. if we point out what's wrong, then we've done our job. Wait, wait, and, wait. Stop, yeah. stop. <laughs> say that again. I, I'm, I'm a slow learner, so if you say it twice, okay. I have a better chance. Yeah, yeah. Our, our theory... Our theory of social change is if we describe what's going wrong, we think we've done our job. We don't wow. need to say the solution. We just say, here's the problem. And there you go. We're journalists. That's it. And so I've tried to write about people I call weavers who are just community builders who are building trust in community, who have dedicated and taken responsibility for something in their neighborhood or for the homeless in their neighborhood or for the kids in their neighborhood. And their stories are so inspiring and gripping. And often people have lived these tremendous traumatic lives that they've channeled into a gift. And yet I can't get my colleagues to write those stories very often. And frankly, I can't often get the audience to listen. But I'll say one good thing about journalism. It forced me to be a questioner. <laughs> I mean, our job is to ask strangers questions. That's what we do. The interview is what we do. And so in the book, I try to digest some of the things I've learned, how to be a good questioner, but also how to be a good conversationalist. And so, for example, just a couple of them is be a loud listener. I have a buddy, when somebody's talking at him named Andy Crouch, he's like one of these congregants in a Pentecostal church. He's like, uh-huh, yes, amen, preach. Yeah. And I just love talking to that guy. He's like a loud listener. Uh, don't be a topper. If you tell me a story about your own kid, you're having trouble with your adolescent, don't say, oh, I know what you mean. My own adolescent is also having problems. No, stay in the other person. I'm not, don't shift back to my problem. Let's stay with your problem. Another one I heard from a mediator was keep the gem statement in the center. So if my brother and I are disagreeing about our dad's health care, there's one thing we generally agree on. We want what's best for our dad. And that's the gem statement. And if you keep the gem statement in the center of a disagreement, you've preserved the relationship. And so you know, Beautiful. we talk about building connection relationship, but it's a skill. It's like carpentry or any other skill. You have to learn the craft of it. And there are these micro social skills that are involved in that. That's beautiful. And, and they're easy. Right. That's, what's tragic is they're so blank simple. <laughs> yeah. And, and what I call the, the gem at the center is the common good. So I just finished a book called Activating the Common Good. And I, my intention is to bring this relational wisdom into the domain of activism. Because hmm. right now we associate activism as a journalistic venture. What's wrong? What's wrong? And the mission I would, I'm on with you is to take what they called human interest in journalism and make it news. Right. And take the news <laughs> and call it human interest. <laughs> yeah. And what Biden did yesterday, put that in the middle of the paper in case you like Joe. <laughs> but, but in the front of the paper, the weavers and the people you right. know that are reconstructing the way we live. And I just think that's what you're doing. And you found a way to do it and get away with it. 
So I'd like to invite y'all to practice that right now. You know, in the same way that we went into groups and folks were able to experience that, I'd like it if the two of y'all would vulnerably would be willing to experience that. Not because we're particularly looking to lift up two more authors and just keep talking about it from the idea level. But even in this hour, when we first jumped on the call together as folks have come in, there have been experiences that Peter and David that you've had and ways that has awakened to you both your place in the world, but also like the gift that this other person is. And I wonder if you'd be willing to do that right now to share the gift that the other has been for you in this hour together. And then we're going to ask folks to do that together as well. But maybe we start with Peter. Would you be willing to say to David the gift that he has been to you in this time, what the transformations that's unfolded for you is in this time? David, I uh, I just am so touched by your humanity. And it's in every breath, every example, even your bragging about Oprah, I forgive you. <laughs> all of us want Oprah to know who we are. Okay, if you're seen by Oprah, it's pretty much all over. And, and you're the vulnerability and you're laughing at yourself that way. It's just beautiful. And just the fact you're here and the smile on your face is a, what a gift. Thank you. You know, I was just talking to Taylor Swift about you. And no, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, I, I would say, um, Peter, for me, uh, you've been wisdom and that, you know, we all talk about community and we all know there's an absence of community, but in your books and in your presence, there were words to that. There, there's like a structure, there's a practice and understanding the practice. I, I'm just like sentences that you've written maybe years ago, go through my mind from time to time. The one that leaps in that you change community by gathering people in a room, often people who used to be called the problem and that community changes as the room you gather and changes. I'm badly paraphrasing you. But the, so, so many of these things I've in, inherited because I'm a bit of a bookish person. I need, you know, you name it and you own it. If you can name something and show the concrete details, you can take a kind of mushy concept like community, which is could be sometimes in common parlance. It's just kind of mushy. You don't know what people are talking about. And you've made it concrete by making it a practice and not just a concept. And mm -hmm. so that's just been so tremendously helpful. Your books were Bibles for us as we were starting Weave. So that, it was just so helpful and so instrumental for us. Thanks for listening. Check the show notes for more information about Peter, David, and David's forthcoming book, How to Know a Person, as well as Reverend Ben McBride and his book, Troubling the Water. You can also find the link for our next Abundant Community Conversation with Peter Block and Parker Palmer on October 26th. Lastly, we'd like to thank Abundant Community, Design Learning, and Faith Matters Network for their partnership. This episode has been produced by me, Joey Taylor, and the music is from Jeff Corman.